Loved ones, I invite you now to turn and find in your Bibles the scripture passage this morning as we start a new series through the majestic book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. And if you have our pew Bibles, that will be found on page 1059. This morning, we will consider chapter 1, verse 1 to 20. So hear now the words from the prophet Isaiah, the words inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey his owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. Your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire, your Fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a field of melons, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom and we would have become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have, no, I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my face from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, 
you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So far, the reading of God's word. This is, in fact, loved ones, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the Holy Spirit add his blessing to it, giving us insight and clarity and application to our hearts as we consider it this morning. You know, daily, loved ones, we take in way more information than our brains can handle, than our hearts can handle. We become, in a sense, information gluttons. And so much information that we receive, right, it's conflicting, opposing views, which makes it really hard for us to figure out what is, in in fact, true, what's really happening. And yet this doesn't keep us, most of us, from feeling certain that we are right, that we know what's happening. Uh, Many of us assume that we are in the know. You know, sometimes I wish that I could kind of pull back the curtain and see what's really going on in society. And most of us think, yes, I want to see that too. Why? So that I can prove once and for all that the bad guys that I call out are in fact the bad guys, that they are corrupt, and that my guys that I praise, that they are the heroes. Well, in a sense, that's what this book does. Isaiah, we learn from the first verse, he was a seer, a seer. He saw, he saw the truth about what was going on from God's own perspective. Verse 1 says he saw a vision, and in the Bible, this usually refers to a heightened sense of perception of the truth, which the Lord granted to his prophets. And that's the case for Isaiah as well. God let Isaiah see behind the curtain of society, of life in Israel. God gave him the eyes to see behind the the veneer of appearances, to lift that up and see what was underneath. He saw the whole dirty truth about God's own people, Israel. But what we will find out is that instead of revealing a simple kind of black and white picture of reality, of where Isaiah was in his society, where his own people were the heroes and the enemies, the nations, were corrupt, instead of that... God showed Isaiah that his own people were just as corrupt as the other nations. God showed Isaiah that at the end of the day, there really are no good guys. The bad guys are bad, yes, but the good guys are also corrupt as well. Both Israel and the nations are evil and corrupt. Both the church and the pagans of the world today are bad and corrupt. We are all bad. You know, imagine how that felt for God's people in Isaiah's day as he preached that in front of them, to their face. You know, how do you react when someone points out the flaws in the people that you think are the heroes of our society, of our culture today? What do you do? What do we usually do? Well, we hear that, the critiques, and we usually defend our guys, right? We defend them, and we close our ears to any of the critiques, and we think that they're just foolish and we get angry at the person who's bringing the critiques against them and conclude ah they don't know the truth they're ignorant fools and this happens loved ones with people on the left side and on the right side and this is what isaiah was up against in his own day nobody nobody in israel wanted to hear this isaiah himself didn't want to see this but he got the director's cut so to speak the behind the scenes look at society 
politics, and religion. And God gave Isaiah that terrible privilege to see the dark reality that even all of their righteousness was as filthy rags before God. It wasn't enough. It wasn't good enough. In fact, it was all dirty, polluted. God gave Isaiah the uncomfortable and also dangerous task of calling out the powerful people of his day on the left and on the right for their sins. Now, do you think people liked Isaiah in his day? No. Many hated him. They disliked him so much that early church tradition says that he was sawn in half. Think of that, sawn in half by his own people, executed. So, will this message from Isaiah's book be easygoing for us? Will it be soft on the ears? Well, no, not at all. Not at all. If we are open to it, it will, in fact, expose our deepest sins. It will show us that we, too, are the bad guys in the story and in life. But that is absolutely necessary in order to see that the Lord God himself is the only good guy, the true hero, the one who will make all things right. And that is where Isaiah, in his book, will lead us to time and time again, not hope in ourselves, but hope in the Lord and his commitment, his commitment to do what is right, to keep his promises of old, to save his people from their sins, to renew them and restore them, again. And so this book, it rings with hope, hope of renewal in God. But before hope comes judgment. Before comfort, there must be the conviction of sin. Before we seek and find washing, we need to hear about our woeful state. And so this morning in the text that we just looked at, we'll see those three these three movements in the text. First, the cry of lament, the charge of rebellion, and the call to washing. This cry of lament first, or the cry of woe. Now, first, we need to find where we are. Let's kind of take a step back here. Find where we are in the big story of the Bible. Where does this take place? When and where does this take place in human history? Well, Isaiah was called as a prophet in the year 740 BC, about 700 years before Jesus Christ was born. And the opening line, it sets the scene for us briefly by saying that Isaiah prophesied in a very pivotal time in the nation of Israel, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, these kings of Judah. This was a pivotal time because they were on the brink of collapse as a nation. During Isaiah's ministry and life, the people and nation of Israel declined morally. They ultimately fell apart by the seams, and they were broken into pieces and, in a sense, led into captivity by the Assyrian Empire who invaded Jerusalem and invaded the kingdom of Israel in the year 701 B.C. But Isaiah's first messages came before that Assyrian invasion, and like all the other prophets, God sent Isaiah kind of as a prosecuting attorney. That was one of the roles of the prophets, to come as a, an attorney to bring a case against God's people. He was tasked to show them all of their crimes they had committed against 
their God and the punishment that they rightly deserve for rebellion against God. If they did not turn away from their evil ways, that punishment would fall upon them. Look at verse 2 in our text. Have the passage open before you where it says there in verse 2, Hear me, O heavens, listen, O earth. The Lord has spoken. What is happening here? Well, this is a court summons from God for his people to appear before him. He has chosen his jury to judge us. What is the jury? Who is the jury? The heavens and the earth. Why? Why the heavens and the earth? Well, they are the witnesses of all that we have done. They have seen God's people from generation to generation. They are witnesses against us. And so the court is in session and God starts his case against his people here. And it is an indictment against us as criminals, criminals against the king of the universe. And he's charging us with wrongdoings. He is our maker and our judge to whom we are held accountable. But not only that, not only that, we see that he is also the father of his people. Father. Notice how God first addresses them as the children that he himself brought up. So we find that this this charge, this case being brought against them, against them, this is the cry of lament coming from the heart of a father who cries over the rebellion of his children. And some of you who are parents, you know this, sadly, you know this too well. You have children that have gone astray, and that breaks your heart. And in a sense, God's heart is also broken by his own children's rebellion when they go astray. In verse 4, where it says in our translation, ah, sinful people, that Hebrew word behind the term ah, also translated in other versions, woe, is oi, oi. And it is an impassioned expression of grief and despair. We even actually still say this sometimes in English when, when something really wrong, really bad happens, we say, oi ve, right? Woe, this woe is the sound of a father's broken heart and his holy frustration with his children, but also a denunciation of their sinful ways. You see, God's rearing of them as his own children should have resulted in them respecting him and his ways, loving him, because they knew God personally. They should have chosen him instead of the lesser things in life, the lesser goods, and woe on them for that. What about us today? Woe on us for wanting things that are not worthy of our hungry hearts. Woe on us for wanting all kinds of things that we were not made for. Our hearts want things impulsively, excessively, and unceasingly. Instead of wanting God and his glory, we are too content with lesser things. And friends, we have to realize this. We have to remember what we were made for. We were made for greater things than what can be advertised on little screens. Think of that. You were made for the Rocky Mountains and the the Grand Canyons the lions and the bears, the dolphins and the sea turtles, the trees and the galaxies above. The human nature that you embody right 
now was made to sit upon a throne, ruling over all of God's creation and enjoying it. But most of all, you were made to enjoy the God to whom all glorious things point to. He is the only one who is essentially good. He is, in his essence, good, true, and beautiful. You were made for the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. And yet, and yet, your heart longs for lesser things. Instead of desiring him and his kingdom like Israel, you and I have forsaken the Lord our God, and so woe on us as well. Why are you distracted with the world's trinkets, whatever that might be for you, whatever you might delight in, when you could be living before the face of God by faith, basking in his love and taking in his beautiful majesty day by day? You see, God wants us to realize that sin is foolishness because it is folly choosing folly over wisdom sin is irrational because it chooses thousands of lesser goods over the one good who alone can satisfy sin is deceptive because it constantly justifies wrongdoing sin is like keeping us from the best meal that is fit for a king by stuffing us instead with pig's feed now, if you think that that image is disgusting, well, good, good, because now you are beginning to see more rightly how your sin is disgusting before the Holy One of Israel. Look at verse 3 with me. Verse 3, Isaiah shows us that even dumb animals like ox and donkeys learn to hear their master's voice and are obedient to it. One commentator says it this way, God's children make animals look intelligent. Oxen and donkeys are stupid even as animals are. They are dense. But they know enough to go find their master. After all, he feeds them. But we are often unmoved by God's love. We wander from one false master to another, hungry, empty, frustrated. What madness is this? That we treat God, our generous Father, as a problem to work around while we get on with the real business of life. The prophet is saying that's stupid, and it breaks God's heart. So do you hear the woe of God the Father, his cry of lament over you, over us? Ever since that naked couple in the rainforest, ever since then we see sin and we think it will make us wise, that it will in some way improve us, but instead it makes us foolish. We who are made in God's image, reared by his loving care, still ignore his voice and we still rebel against him. And the second part of verse 4 is kind of a summary statement of the problem. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel. They have turned their backs on him. They had abandoned the Lord their God. They had rejected him repeatedly. Israel, they gave him the stiff arm to his presence. And in today's lingo, we could say they blocked his profile. They canceled him. They tried to silence his voice. And what was the result of this rebellion? 
Where do people find themselves after forsaking God and his ways? Well, we find ourselves in the wasteland of woe, a mess of misery, a desert of doom. And that's why in the next section, verses 5 to 8 of the text, Isaiah describes the people of Judah and Israel like a person who has just been jumped by thugs and left in a back alley with open wounds festering. Every part of the body bruised, beaten from head to toe. It is a picture of total depravity and its results of misery. Now, if you happen to enter into an alleyway in life, walking down the street, where you found there waiting for you some thugs that hurt you, beat you up, and stole from you, would you ever go back to that same alleyway? No, that would be absolutely foolish. Then why? Why do you go back to the same sinful patterns that hurt you and steal from your inherent dignity as one made in the image of God? See, the people of Israel continued in their rebellion against God, even though they always knew that it would end up resulting in them being like a dirty, bloody-nosed kid who was beaten up again by the school bullies. Isaiah's warning Israel that this will happen again in your near future. The city and their peoples will be desolate and in ruins. He's saying if you persist in your rebellious ways, you will end up ruined. Don't say, I didn't warn you, the wages of sin is death. If you eat it, you will surely die, as God told Eve. This woe resounding from the highest heavens falls into the desert wasteland of misery for us to hear. And we get yet, in verse 9, a small glimpse of hope there in the brokenness and ruin where it says, unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom and we would have become like Gomorrah. And this reminds me of a, a fascinating, inspiring Japanese art form called kintsugi, which means golden joinery. And so in this art form, instead of seeing a broken and ruined bowl that has been dropped and now cracked, as worthless and throwing it away to just buy another one. In Kintsugi, the cracks are mended with a lacquer mixed with a precious metal like gold so that it ends up more beautiful after it's been fixed. And Isaiah is saying something similar here, that even though God's people are broken and ruined, equally deserving of judgment like Sodom and Gomorrah, God chooses to save to mend and to make beautiful some by his grace. So at the end of this woe, we already see a glimmer of hope. But before he gives us more good news about that hope, we hear the charge of rebellion in verses 10 to 18. And that's our second point, charge with rebellion. So in this courtroom with the heavens and the earth as jury, God lays down the charges of rebellion against us. And notice how low they had sunk in their sin. They are far from what they should have been. He said just prior that they would have been, become like Sodom and Gomorrah. But now here in verse 10, he calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. The leaders of Judah in that day were leading a people that rivaled the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. How so? Well, 
We know little about the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, but we know this, that they were motivated by self-interest and they preyed upon the weak and the vulnerable in their society. And the same charge is laid against God's people. They had blocked God in order to let their streets run with injustice. They tried to silence God in order to continue with their own agenda. But here is the striking thing that I want us to see. How did they block God and try to silence him? They didn't do it in an obviously sinful way. They were not those parading taboo sins in the streets and celebrating them. No, the charge of rebellion is laid against those who were parading biblical religion in the streets. This is striking. They stiff-armed God with his own law and his own commandments with their religiosity. You see, we tend to think that the heinous sins of society are great offenses against God, and they are, no doubt about that. But here we learn another important part of the picture. The empty and heartless religion of people in the church is also a great offense against God. Why? Because it is a way of using God and his means of grace as a way to maintain a distance from God, to keep him far away from us, in a sense. How so? It's possible. It is possible to do religious things in order to try and manipulate God, to try and keep him on your side, making sure that he continues to bless you. Religiosity says, if I do enough religious acts, then God has to take care of me. If I obey, God is obliged to bless me. If I am good, then God owes me. But that is not the case, because that is not the true God. You cannot make the Creator God your debtor. That is impossible. And here we learn that the one true God cannot be bought for service with religiosity, even if it is biblical religion. The Holy One of Israel is not so cheaply bought or bribed. You can't work your way into heaven and into His favor. How then is it possible? How is it possible to draw near to God in the ways that he tells us to in his word and still be in the wrong? And this is how. When you try to draw near to God in religion while holding your heart back from him. Well, think of Judas Iscariot. Think of Judas Iscariot as an example of how a person can betray Jesus while drawing near to him even while kissing him on the cheek. Loved ones, rebellion doesn't always look like lies and spit and slaps in the face. Sometimes it looks like a greeting, shalom, rabbi, a kiss, and an empty heart like Judas Iscariot. And that's why Judas Iscariot, that's what he did to God, that's what Jesus accused the religious elites of his own day of doing, and that's what Isaiah charged Israel and Judah of doing in his own day. And this is what God is saying to his church today as well. He's saying, worship me with your heart, not just with your lips. Give me your soul in singing, not just sound coming off your lips. Give me yourselves with fullness of thanks and joy in me. You see, just like Judas Iscariot was with the Lord Jesus, the people of Judah were in close proximity to the Lord their God in religion, but they were far from him in their hearts. 
Isaiah is saying that their sacrifices, their festivals, their new moons and Sabbaths, they were like kisses of betrayal because God knew their hearts. He knew they were far from him. He knows all, and he still knows all. He doesn't just see us put together on Sunday morning. He sees us at our worst moments each week, and he sees the inner workings of our thoughts and desires. He knows if you are rebelling against him with rowdy sin or religious sin. He knows if you are overtly sinning or covertly sinning. He knows your particular sins and your particular rebellious ways. Now, what were the particular sins of his people that God knew during the time of Isaiah? Well, he alludes to them in the verses that follow where he says, Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. In other words, their streets were littered with injustice. They were not taking care of the overlooked, the underprivileged, and the disadvantaged. Not only were they doing what was wrong, but they also had not learned to do what is right positively. God wants us to avoid evil and to do what is good. But they were not seeking justice in the streets, out in public in their day-to-day life, Out of self-interest, they did not stand up with courage to defend the oppressed around them. They praised God one moment with their mouths, but then they refused to use that mouth to defend the rights of the underprivileged. And so we find, in that sense, that they did not rise up to do what is right. And this is not, think of this, loved ones, this is not a woke millennial telling you that God wants you to care about the oppressed and the disadvantaged. These are the words of Isaiah, the prophet of the Lord who said this 2,700 years ago. The charge of rebellion was laid before Israel and it's laid before us again this morning. Isaiah says that their hands were bloody, a vivid symbol of guilt, caught red-handed. They were blissfully walking over others with their self-interest. The blood of orphans, widows, and sojourners were on their hands, and God saw their sins, and he sees our sin as well. Since God saw their hands dirtied with sin and stained with guilt, God tells them to go wash up. And that leads us to our last point, the call to washing. First, God tells them in verse 16 in our text, wash and make yourselves clean. In a sense, go take a bath. You're dirty, you're filthy. But then in verse 18 to 20, God tells them that he will wash them and make them whiter than snow. It reminds me of my young boys, you know, after they're out in the backyard playing in the mud, I tell them, you guys need to take a bath. You're filthy, right? Go wash your hair, scrub behind your ears, Remove that filth. I tell them that, but then later, eventually, I say, okay, it's my turn. Now I get to wash you, right? Why? Because they don't know how to wash themselves well enough. They don't do a good enough job of washing up. They're still learning. And our problem is even worse. 
God calls us here to wash ourselves, to cleanse ourselves, but we need to realize that it is ultimately only God who can truly cleanse us from our sin and guilt. We need to wash up, yes, but we need to let God do it for us, ultimately. There's a great illustration of this in William Shakespeare's play, Macbeth. Uh, and there, Lady Macbeth and Macbeth himself murder King Dukin, and they can't sleep because their guilt is haunting them. It's haunting them, right? Finally, Lady Macbeth is able to fall asleep, but then she slips into a nightmare, and she begins to walk and talk in her sleep. And as she walks, she's rubbing her hands as though trying to wash them, trying to get rid of the blood, and she says, Out, damned spot. The spot she's referring to is this invisible spot of blood on her hand. It represents her guilt. She's rubbing it, trying to erase it, but she can't. She says, here's yet a spot, she cries, desperately rubbing. Here's a small of blood still, she cries and says, all the waters of the ocean can't make her clean. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. Who is Lady Macbeth? so stained with guilt? We are. We are. Isaiah has said that our hands are full of blood. We are guilty and we cannot remove that damned spot of guilt by ourselves. You see, a life dedicated to religion, religious rituals, will not remove the spot of blood guilt on you. A life dedicated to offering God the sweet aroma of good deeds won't remove the stench of your sin. So what can? What is powerful enough to remove our guilt, to take that scarlet stain, wash it until it is as white as snow? It is the blood of Jesus alone. Through the prophet Isaiah, God here promised that he would wash his people from all their sin and guilt. Isaiah didn't know how that would happen exactly, but now we do. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, we read that Jesus was in one of the towns, and a man came along who was covered with leprosy, that skin disease, all over, from head to toe. And when Jesus saw him, he fell or when he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Friends, you and I are in need of washing and cleansing just as much as that man who is covered head to toe with leprosy, like Israel and like that man, you cannot wash yourself. You cannot make yourself clean or whole. We need to see what that man saw. We need to see that only Jesus can make us clean. That if Jesus is willing, that he will make us clean. And let me assure you of this, that if you come to Jesus by faith, he will not turn you away. He will say, as he said to that man, I am willing, be clean. So come now, settle the matter with the Lord. Come to Jesus. As we close today, I pray that you come to see and delight in the cleansing power of Jesus' blood 
just as one old hymn says in the cleansing wave, Oh, now I see the crimson wave, the fountain deep and wide. Jesus, my Lord, mighty to save, points at his wounded side. The cleansing stream I see, I see, I plunge, and oh, it cleanseth me. Oh, praise the Lord, it cleanseth me. Amazing grace, tis heaven below to feel the blood applied. In Jesus, only Jesus, know my Jesus crucified. So, loved ones, friends, may you too feel his blood applied to your heart, your guilt removed, and may you feel and delight in his amazing grace. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we have heard your cry of lament, the woe that we find ourselves in. We have also heard the charge of rebellion brought against us, that in fact we stand guilty in and of ourselves. And yet we praise you and delight in the cleansing wave of Jesus' blood, which has washed us of all our sins. We who have trusted in Jesus by the faith that you have given us. Lord, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, cause us to walk in your ways, to mend our ways, to seek to purify ourselves as you are pure. And Lord, for any who have not yet come to settle this matter with you of their guilt and sin and rebellious ways, we ask, Lord, that you would grant to that person conviction of their sin and grant them repentance and faith, that they too might have fellowship with us and be covered and cleansed by the blood of Jesus. This we ask for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Loved ones, let's respond with a song of application. 454, I lay my sins on Jesus. 454.
how amazing it is that even though as we've considered how sinful we are and the the condemnation that we so deserve that instead he invites us to this table to eat what is good to delight in him and his grace for us in christ and so to all of you who have with godly sorrow confessed your sins and have affirmed true faith in christ the promise of jesus is sure whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and i will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink for the lord jesus on the night when he was betrayed he took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way he took also the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me now this bread and this wine they stay bread and wine nevertheless we believe that these elements become so united to the reality that they signify that they're pointing to that is the body and blood of christ that we joyfully believe that we receive in this meal the mysterious work of the holy spirit who connects us to the crucified body and shed blood of our lord jesus christ to have real participation with our savior jesus for all who live in rebellion against god and in unbelief beware this holy food and drink will only bring you further condemnation if you do not yet confess jesus christ and to seek to live under his gracious reign we we admonish you please abstain from this meal today and on the back of the bulletin there are prayers written for you if you're in process if you're on the fringe and haven't yet fully given yourself by faith to jesus you can read those quietly to yourself and in prayer to god but to all of you this morning who have repented who believe you are invited to the sacred meal not because you are worthy in yourself but because you are clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness. So do not allow the weakness of your faith or your failures in the Christian life to keep you from this table, for it is given to us because of our weaknesses, because of our failures, in order to increase our faith by feeding us with the body and blood of Jesus Christ. As the Word has promised us God's favor, so also our Heavenly Father has added this confirmation of His unchangeable promise. So come, believing sinners, for the table is ready. Taste and see that the Lord is good let us pray almighty and everlasting god o holy one of israel who by the blood of your only begotten son has secured for us a new and living way into the holy of holies the power of christ shed blood you have cleansed us and we ask that you would again this morning cleanse our minds and our hearts by your word and spirit that we your redeemed people drawing close to you through this holy sacrament may in fact enjoy fellowship with the holy trinity through the body and blood of christ our savior we know that jesus he is ascended he lives at your right hand he is not in a temple made by human hands but is in heaven where he continues to intercede on our behalf and so we ask that through this sacrament by your own word and spirit May these common elements now be set apart from their ordinary use and consecrated by you so that just as truly as we eat and drink these elements by which our bodily life is sustained, so truly we might receive into our souls for spiritual life the true body and true blood of Christ. 
Lord, it is our prayer and request that we would receive these gifts by your hand. Lord, give us true faith. Give us faith to come to receive the good that you offer us in Christ. As we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Loved ones, let us now go to our heavenly table and receive the gift of God for our souls by the promise of God. This bread and wine are for us, the blood of Christ. Lift up your hearts. Amen. Well, I invite the elders to come forward, dismiss us by row, and we'll return back to our seats to partake together.
body and blood given to cleanse you from all your sin. Thank you, holiness. Thomas, your body and blood is given to cleanse you all your sin. Thank you, holiness. Loved ones, the bread which we break is a communion of the body of Christ. Take, eat, remember, and believe that the body of our Lord Jesus Christ was broken for a complete forgiveness of all our sins. 